There's been a lot in the news lately about the treatment of children, of young people and of adults in detention. In this podcast, we look at the legal obligations towards people in closed environments and a bit about the rights of adults to discipline children. You're listening to Law Radio. Melissa Caston talks to Associate Professor Bronwyn Naylor from Monash University about the legal obligations towards people in what she calls closed environments. And we get to the bottom of the application or otherwise of the optional protocol to the Convention Against Torture or OPCAT. You're listening to Law Radio. I'm Kate Galloway. So what is the Convention Against Torture? So the Convention Against Torture is a a UN convention which most countries in the world have signed and which requires countries to pass laws to prevent torture but also to prevent cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment in any places where um, people are being deprived of their liberty. So that obviously brings to mind places like prisons or places where people are detained for punishment reasons but does it apply to other places where people are held? Yes, it's actually a recognition that any time people lose their liberty, there's risk that they will suffer abuse. There's a risk. So it covers all places where people are deprived of their liberty. And as you say, prisons, it includes juvenile detention facilities, immigration detention facilities, but also forensic psychiatric facilities, potentially aged care facilities that are locked. So there's really a very broad coverage of the convention. Is that what people sometimes call closed environments? Yeah, yeah, we can call them closed environments. It gives you the picture. They're closed environments, or you might call them places of detention. Okay. So how does that convention operate or have any effect in Australia? Well, it's more a requirement for the state to actually, for the country to actually um, legislate. But there's not currently an immediate form of enforcement in Australia. So is Australia obliged to comply with those international laws or not? Australia is obliged to comply with them in terms of incorporating them to its domestic legislation, but there's not a separate means that people can actually challenge or enforce it. Okay, so I've heard people talking about OPCAT. What's an OPCAT? Okay, so the OPCAT, it's a great name, um, is the Optional Protocol to the Convention Against Torture. So it's an optional protocol, so even when countries have signed up to the Convention Against Torture, they've got a choice about whether they sign up to the optional protocol, to right. OPCAT. Um, but if they do sign up to OPCAT, they're then agreeing to, to actually do quite a lot of really important things that are, that are really significant for protecting people from abuses in these closed environments or places of detention. So they have to do, they agree to do at least two things. They agree to set up a really comprehensive regime of monitoring of all places of detention. So monitoring means having an external independent body that can come into a prison or an immigration detention centre or anywhere. They've, they've got to be permitted to come in when they want to. They've got to be permitted to talk to people, to staff, to detainees, to look at documents, to ask questions, and really to be able to, to check that people are actually being protected, that their rights are being protected in that closed environment. And we already have some of those sorts of bodies. We have sort of ombudsman bodies. Mm. We have some prisons inspectorates. So Australia does have some of those bodies already. But that first level that's required under OPCAT is to establish a comprehensive regime. So that would be like a federal regime that 
puts requirements on all the states and territories? It's a bit complicated in a federal regime because obviously we have we have states that run, for example, prisons, but we have uh, a federal government that runs, for example, immigration detention. So there's going to be different sets of, of agencies or monitoring bodies, but you'd expect to have a federal regime which would perhaps set up the structure, but then you may well have separate monitoring bodies in the states. But these are all called National Preventive Mechanisms or NPMs, so we have lots of acronyms. So we have OPCAT and states have to set up NPMs, um, which is National Preventive Mechanisms, which address all the different types of closed environments and that do have that really comprehensive monitoring to protect the rights of people in those closed environments. Do you think Australia has adequate monitoring at the moment? In some sectors it has quite strong monitoring. It's got um, it's got a really strong prisons inspectorates, for example, in Western Australia and New South Wales. Uh, Victoria does have a prison monitoring body, but that prison monitoring body is established within the government department. So whilst it does do excellent work, it's also what you, not what you would call an independent body and it can't report publicly. So there's a number of criteria under OPCAT for what makes really good monitoring, mm. and that includes being really independent from government, as you'd expect, being properly resourced, having the capacity to enter those closed environments when they want to, just even even without announcing it. They can do it announced or they can do mm. it unannounced. And also to have discussions with government about what they've found and to report publicly if they need to. Um, so we do have some of those agencies, the prisons inspectorates, for example. Um, we have very good regimes of volunteer visitor schemes for places like psychiatric facilities and for some prisons, but they don't necessarily have that sort of level of resourcing or expertise that you need. So. We have quite a few examples in Australia, but it's not comprehensive and thorough yet. Mm. Are there places that you think do provide that kind of overall monitoring frameworks really well? Other countries. Other countries or? Yes, well, I think that the, the important thing is that it's, it's important to have this sort of really effective and comprehensive monitoring and ratifying OPCAT helps to drive that. Okay. So in Australia, we should be working on improving our monitoring anyway mm. um, and, and building on what we already have that's great. But if we ratify OPCAT, we then have that motivation and driver to actually make sure it's comprehensive mm. and across Australia. So other countries that have done that and have established good monitoring regimes that are you know, equivalent really like New Zealand and the UK, uh, what they've done is they've looked at their existing monitoring bodies, they've looked at the ones that do have those really important fundamental characteristics of good monitoring and they've called them all their NPM. Right. And then they've given the chief one, the chief, the hat, saying you're the chief NPM. Yep. Uh, and they kind of manage that across the board. Now there's another component though of signing up to OPCAT. So when a government signs up to OPCAT, not only does it agree to establish this monitoring regime across the whole of Australia, but they also agree to allow our UN committee to kind of come in from time to time and check on how that monitoring's going. Right. And also to advise and help with any sort of issues that are arising. That's called the Subcommittee on the Prevention of Torture. So you've got OPCAT, you've got to set up NPMs, <laughs> and you have to have an SPT that can visit from time to time. And being part of that committee system, committee monitoring system, I guess would mean that we have to provide periodic reports back to the committee about what improvements we'd made or what... Yes. what problems we'd yeah. address. So they'll be reporting. And the, the way the SPT has been working to date is very much it engages with governments. It has dialogue with governments. It discusses what are the issues, you know, what are some of the ways of improving the situation, uh, what are the ways of addressing any problems. So it's it's not 
adversarial in that sense. It's, it's sort of arriving to provide support and guidance. So you see it as providing quite a constructive process towards bringing a country into compliance with yes. these international standards. Yes. yes, that's right. I mean, it's obviously a very challenging area, but there are certainly examples already of good practice in, in other countries, and there's also, I said, good monitoring practice in Australia already. So I, mean, I think it's something Australia can absolutely be ready to sign up to, and it should do so. So can I turn then to this issue we've seen in the recent press about the treatment of young people in detention and some very shocking and abusive scenes of kids being treated extraordinarily harshly. How would the Convention on Against Torture and even being part of OPCAT make a difference to that type of scenario that we've, that we've seen? Well, you certainly have to start prospectively by actually having legislation that makes it clear what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. Yeah, a lot of what we saw that was occurring in, I think, Northern Territory was legal in Northern Territory law. Well, I, yeah, I can't comment on the detail of that, I'm not sure, but there are certainly, well, in many jurisdictions there'll be permission for guards, people managing facilities to use reasonable force or necessary force, and mm. that's always going to be a matter of debate. Mm. Um, and it's an area where I think you'd say that the mental health sector has developed those notions of what's reasonable force and what's acceptable and appropriate and human rights compliant much more fully. So that will be something that you'd need to go, you'd need to go down that track as well. In terms of monitoring, having strong monitoring bodies should make a difference, mm. particularly where monitoring bodies can proactively go into the agency or go into the closed environment to check on it. And, and ideally, if you've got a monitoring body that's going in to check, then abuses won't happen in the first place. Mm. However, we did see in the Northern Territory that there were monitoring bodies that had reviewed these particular practices and had reported on them and had not had their reports taken up by government. Mm. So there's always that other issue about the legitimacy or the extent to which um, politically the reports of monitoring bodies are taken seriously. And again, that's where having a national framework should give that a lot more weight mm. and a lot more leg legitimacy and credibility. Do you think there's something going on? I'm, I'm interested as to why these issues have come up now regarding these um, kids in detention and the abuses of kids in detention. Is it just an added level of media scrutiny that occurs? You know, you find out about one and then whistleblowers or reports are revealed about others. Is there something going on that indicates a change in our attitudes towards youth in detention or is it just a combination of media and political cycles? Mm. It's difficult to say isn't it but I think that we have seen the development of for example in, in Australia across a number of states the development of children's commissioners uh, and guardians so monitoring bodies that are I guess highlighting and becoming more sensitised to concerns about all sorts of issues to do with young people both young people in detention and also young people in in uh, protective care as well, mm. um, which obviously often overlaps and, and has a lot of very important and significant consequences. I think there's also the impact, of course, of the Royal Commission on, on Sexual Abuse in Institutions. Mm. We're really becoming a lot more aware, I think, of the issues, and I, which I think is terrific, mm. but it's always a bit depressing if you think that it takes you know, a really graphic media story to, to sort of highlight an issue which was already being highlighted in, yes. in the Northern Territory. So processes were already disclosing mm. the abuses, but it just didn't hit the public sensitivity or the public yes. eye. Yes. Do you think that there's a difference in the way we treat children in these closed environments from how we treat adult people who are incarcerated or deprived of their liberty? Uh, is, there, is there something going on about children 
I know you've done some work in the past about corporal punishment of children or, or parents smacking children. Do, is there some area or some, I guess, theme going on here about children not being, you know, people deserving of full rights? It's an interesting, yeah, it's an interesting direction to think about. I mean, we certainly have very clear statements of, of rights of human beings, of all people, when held in places of detention, as mm. we've described. But it may be that we're seeing the a, a sort of parental or a disciplinary role as being more significant and more acceptable in relation to, to children and young people. And, and, of course, there's an interesting discussion about when we call them children and when we call them young people. Yes. Uh, and, and what we envisage then as being their levels of responsibility and what we're allowed to do to them, to discipline them and control them. But I think that's something that's definitely worth thinking thinking more about as to whether or not we are at, at this stage willing to treat children with the respect and with the as people with the level of physical and, and psychological autonomy that we ascribe to adults. Is corporal punishment legal in Australia? Yeah, corporal punishment's legal in Australia. Uh, it's been you know, quite strongly um, defended every time it's, um, there's proposals made to limit parents' right to, um, to smack their child or to, to apply corporal punishment. I mean, child abuse is child abuse, it's illegal. But in Australia, the law of assault, which simply makes it criminal to in any way touch, injure, hurt somebody, um, has a defence in relation to corporal punishment. A parent has a defence that if they're applying reasonable chastisement, reasonable discipline, depending what's regarded as reasonable, then it will not be an offence. So it's a defence. That's what's really interesting. Mm. And that's been a common law concept, you know, certainly that Australia took over from the UK. Um, there are certainly a number of countries which have moved to ban that, which have actually said, particularly focusing on the Convention on the Rights of the Child, have said we have to actually reconceptualise children, that they're not the property of parents. Yeah. Um, parents are not entitled to to sort of smack them or hit them in ways that they could not do legally to an adult. Yeah. And it requires rethinking, you know, how you work with children when you've got children of your own, you know, what, what are the forms of discipline, how do you sort of set up expectations and how you manage consequences and so on. But it's saying, however you do that, you're not entitled to hit them. Um, so there are a small number of countries which have banned corporal punishment. There are a number of countries that have limited it. In New South Wales, it's limited by reference to, I think, being... Uh, below the head, only at a certain level, only that doesn't have an amount of pain which is which is more than merely transitory. There's very sort of strange mm -hmm. limitations which you do wonder whether any parent will look that up and say, okay, well, this is where I'm allowed to hit you and this is for how long. Um, similarly in the UK, because they were pressured, because they asked sort of members of a human rights community in Europe, they were they had to cut back on parental entitlement to smack children so they've limited it you're only allowed to smack your child as long as it's a minor level of injury or pain um actual bodily harm not grievous bodily harm i keep so, thinking about how one would assess this exactly exactly and and whether as a parent you know anyone's going to actually put yeah. this on the fridge and work out what they're allowed to do and actually this has been similarly the approach in canada that there's been a human rights concern which has been responded to by sort of trying to control the amount that you can hit your child or where or for how long or in what with what instruments or not instruments and so on whereas the countries that have banned it have simply said that children are human beings with their own bodily integrity and you just can't hit them right it's not acceptable <laughs> i mean and all countries allow everyone allows for the, the general defense of what's referred to as the defense of necessity or emergency so yes. you're walking down a street someone's about to be hit by a car you grab them forcibly and throw yes. them to the footpath to save their life 
you know, that will be regarded as a full defence. You know? And so similarly, your parents say, but what if they're putting their hand in the fire or what if they're about to be run over by a car? And yeah. you say, well, that's not an issue. You're not yeah. hitting them for discipline. Yeah. You're hitting them to save them. Yeah. Um, and that will be perfectly acceptable. So all of those concerns that groups raise about the rights of the parent to control the body of their child really are not, are not problems. It's mm. that the issue is going to be, should you be allowed to actually assault them in order to discipline them? Mm. And that really takes me back to thinking about the guards that are basically assaulting young people in incarceration who, I guess, justify it by saying, well, it was necessity. We had to do something to control this person who was out of control. Yes. But I presume there are ways of controlling people who are behaving in extreme ways that don't involve this kind of very harsh yes, abuse. Yes, of course, of course, that's right. Well, 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 as I said earlier on, there's always going to be those exemptions for reasonable force for an emergency for use of force in an emergency and so on um, but but there are plenty of other sectors and fields where the issue of force and restraint have been really carefully dealt with in ways that respect autonomy and so on I mean this is not it's not necessary to do this it, it may it certainly requires uh, appropriate training and protocols you can't expect a person who's just brought into a position without any training for example if that was to happen to know what to do I mean I would find that really difficult if you know faced with a with a very difficult and challenging and confronting set of behaviors you know what's the right way to manage that but that's why you give people appropriate training and you set up appropriate policies and protocols and you support your staff so that they can work in a way that's safe for them and that's safe for the people that they're detaining. Thank you Bronwyn you've raised a lot of very difficult and challenging issues and and I seems like we're overdue to rethink some of these elements of both our laws and how we behave with young people and all people in closed environments. Yep, absolutely. Thanks, Melissa. You've been listening to Associate Professor Bronwyn Naylor from Monash University. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and find us online at lawradio.net. This is Law Radio. I'm Kate Galloway. See you next time.